I'm Daniel Chacon. Welcome to another edition of Words on a Wire. Today, my guest is Virgil Suarez. We're going to be talking to him all the way from Florida, I believe. Before we get into this conversation, I have to tell you that um, years ago, when I was a new professor in the MFA creative writing uh, uh, here at the University of Texas, I was at an MFA party having a conversation with some graduate students, and all of us were standing in a circle. We were talking about the difference between writers who publish a book, or maybe many books, but once they die, their work dies with them, and their name disappears from reading lists. And then there's writers that leave their work behind, and it becomes important beyond their own generation, and in fact, may be studied in the future as literature representative of that generation. One student, her name was Amanda, said to me, Chacon, you know who I think is going to be one of the great writers of our time? Virgil Suarez. This was almost 20 years ago, and I would constantly run into work by Virgil Suarez in literary journals and anthologies, some of which we appeared in together, but I hadn't really noticed his work that much. Yet when Amanda insisted that his work was great, and other students in the circle were nodding their heads in agreement, yeah, Suarez, I thought, who is this guy? What is he writing that the brilliant graduate students in our MFA would value his work so much? So I looked more closely at his writing and I saw that they were right, that this is important work. This is timeless work. There's race and class and spirituality, but most importantly, Suarez writes about himself, about ourselves, what it is to be human. Today, we're here to talk about Virgil Suarez's, oh, I don't know, maybe 20th book. It's really hard to count. He has, I know, five novels and I think at least 14 collections of poetry and countless anthologies and books of essays. And he's still publishing. His latest book is called The Painted Bunting's Last Molt. It's a collection of poems released by University of Pittsburgh Press, which, as you know, is, is one of the big ones. And I'm very happy to have Virgil Suarez on Words on a Wire. Virgil, welcome to the show. Thank you, Daniel. I'm delighted and honored to be here and bless Amanda for uh, for speaking such lovely words on my behalf. You know, it's funny, um, ever, ever since I, she told me that, every time I encounter your name, I think of that. I think this guy is who the young people think is going to last. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's a, it's been a long a long road, and I believe uh, you and I are the same age, uh, and by exactly. that I mean that we're exactly. still very that we're still very young, right? Um, you know, and for years, uh, as I ran into people, in particular at the AWP, everybody always said the same thing. It's like, oh man, you're everywhere. Uh, everybody's publishing you, and. <laughs> And to me, you know, it, it was just, um, I mean, I never took it as a, as a this. I took it more as, a, okay, uh, I'm, you know, I'm working. I'm doing what I love to do. And, uh, and that's all, you know. Ever since I was a kid, I've always been terrified of work. I mean, I don't <laughs> know to this day why human beings work. Uh, and I'm a fallen Catholic, uh, so, you know, those of us who grew up with the idea that, you know, uh, God uh, got upset with us because of the original sin, and this is part of the punishment that we have to work, and then you move to a country 
uh, like the United States, which is a filthy capitalist um, place where, yeah, you can make some of your dreams come true, uh, but you have to work very hard from the time you're born until you're basically dropped dead. So, you know, to be a writer here is kind of a privilege, and I've never taken it for granted. Uh, I, I love the fact that writing has spared me a long, difficult life of menial and meaningless uh, work, you know. Right, right. Um, but, but, the, but nonetheless, writing itself is, is work and very, you know, uh, often... Yeah, no, no, no doubt. It, no, no doubt. But what I mean is, it's, it's pleasurable. I, I think any artistic endeavor is, is uh, you know, you're, you're of course, uh, sweating and, and you're working hard, but it's it's totally worth it. I mean, it's, it's an existential thing for me. I, right, right. It, it brings meaning. It brings meaning to my life and to the stuff that I see in the world, you know. And, and uh, so, yeah. Yeah, and having the time to right. work is, like you said, it's an incredible privilege because most people who yeah. do what we do do it for fun or for a hobby or for inspiration and, mm-hmm. and, and don't have the luxury yeah. to do it for work. Well, this is how so many of us ended up in the academy and that we still have to, uh, you know, my grandmother was a teacher, so I, I think it's one of the highest, most honorable professions there is. And I didn't mean to become a teacher along the way, but that's what I became. Right. So I honor the profession and it, and it helps pay for the bills because, you know, we, we live in a country where every year you hear the statistics that fewer and fewer people uh, read and, uh, you know, the NEA killed the, the, the rest of the other arts. So uh, if you don't look carefully, you realize that you're living in a country where you're not surrounded by any kind of artistic endeavor uh, and you have to go looking for it. You have to be proactive, you know. Right. Um, and this is why I always tell my students it's very important that you write uh, as well as you possibly can. But the other part of your job is you need to get out there and hustle uh, because nobody's going to come and look through your drawers uh, to, to, <laughs> to find your work, right. you know. Uh, right? That, that whole story about, um, oh, geez, what was her name? The uh, great Rita uh, 19th century. Uh, I'm thinking of a different uh, Emma, I was Swab's talk- drugstore uh, <laughs> uh, metaphor. I was talking about Emily Dickinson, oh. who became famous posthumously pretty much uh, because somebody published her work. And, you know, that's not going to happen to you or to me. So we have to be proactive. We have to get out there and, 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 uh, and uh, sound off the alarm. Hey, we've got work uh, that if you're interested in, I'll read to you or you can pick up and so on and so forth. You can't just be complacent uh, thinking, you know, and this is a way I think many of us have of checking our egos at the door. Right. It's like, yeah, if, if you don't promote your work, um, nothing's going to happen. Uh, you know, uh, there are lots and lots of great writers in this country and poets. Uh, and, I, and I like there's a little bit less competition in the poetry world, you know, which is why I laugh when I hear somebody say, oh, so-and-so is the best American poet. And it's like, uh-huh. yeah, for every time I hear that, I can come up with 10 other names, you know. Right. So it's a, it's, a, it's a vast country full of amazing writers. You know, I, I have you know? this uh, uh, 
I, I, I return to this metaphor of the Schwab's drugstore myth over and over again. When I tell students they have to promote their work, that's the myth that I think it was Rita Hayworth, 16 years old, sitting at a counter, drinking a soda through a straw, and a Hollywood producer right. saw her and says, baby, I'm going to make you a star. And a lot of writers, yeah. I think, have that mindset that they're going to be discovered by some editor or by some professor of creative writing, as right. if we had that much of a cultural voice. But really, it is their part of their job, especially today, to go out there and and promote their work. But when when we first started writing, you started writing before I did. Uh, you were the same age, but you started I think your first book was in 1993 mine was in in 2000 when you started writing things were different back then weren't they than they are now I mean yeah. isn't there more pressure now to promote your work with two million books coming out in the country every year yeah well not only that but um, you know the uh, rules for American publishers uh, and I'm talking about usually the uh, big publishers in New York uh, who used to uh, publish a lot of fiction at one time, uh, they would take chances on a new writer because even if that writer's book didn't sell well, uh, they can yes. still keep the books in a warehouse somewhere and then they can discount, they can file uh, with uh, the IRS, they can file a loss. Well, the, the, you know, the tax code changed somewhere, I think in the mid to late 90s and or even a little bit earlier. And so publishers couldn't uh, discount. Uh, so they, they started buying each other up. They started, some of them went under. Uh, some of them got rid of their mid-list writers and the uh, pool shrunk. Right. And now they're bought, you know, they're owned by these corporations where if you have a good agent and your agent talks to an editor somewhere and that editor turns down the book, it means that a lot of other uh, subdivisions are not going to be interested in the book. So uh, <laughs> that leaves for us, it leaves a lot of university presses. And I always sing the praises of my first press, which was at the Publico Press in Houston. Uh, they've been very good to me uh, since the beginning. They still keep my books in press. And, um, and you know, and I had a good experience with them. Some other writers didn't. Uh, but I'm glad that there are presses like that. You've got, I think, in your neck of the woods, you've got Cinco Puntos Press, uh, run by Bobby Bird and his uh, right. wife. Uh -huh. And, you know, they, 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 they publish good stuff. And so... Uh, you know, avid readers eventually will find and discover these presses uh, and really enjoy uh, the books that they publish because oftentimes they're voices that are never going to get a chance uh, to be published in the so-called New York uh, mainstream. And so, like I tell my students, you've got to publish where they like your work and where they're willing to uh, to promote it. And even if they don't promote it, that's, you know, you got to throw a bunch of copies in the trunk of your car and hit the road, you know? Right. Um, so, you know, this idea that, um, you know, you, you, you're going to write, which is a, so, so destructive uh, for American writers, for any writer, uh, but the myth that, you know, you're going to write the great American novel, <laughs> and oftentimes that, you know, that's expected to be your first novel, and then after that, you're on your way down. I mean, they've done it to so many writers. I really think it's the reason why somebody like Hemingway blew his brains out, you know? Uh, it's just eventually you realize, or they give you the big price. You win a Pulitzer Prize, 
and then in your own lifetime you see yourself erode into an erosure that uh, uh, may, maybe if you're lucky somebody will rediscover you in a hundred years. Uh, I don't, you know, I think about those things, but I also, as a writer, don't worry about it. I always consider myself to be a working writer, which means I get up every day and I try to write every day and eventually I publish and I care about my children that I put out into the world. But that's really all I am. I don't know what I, you know, I, I don't have control over the stuff that's going to come later. After I leave the planet, I have no idea, right? right. <clears throat> Those of us who, who write, you know, who uh, immigrated to this country, uh, for example, people tell me, well, nobody knows who the hell you are in Cuba. And I go, well, I don't, you know, I don't blame them. I write mostly in English. I publish in the United States. And then I always think, well, I'm, I'm always disappearing in the United States. You know, I publish books and then eventually, maybe if I'm lucky, a graduate student will bring my name up. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, but that happens, that happens yeah. to all of us. Uh, so it's a matter of doing your job, doing it well, and then do what's in your control. Don't drive yourself crazy. Uh, thinking that you have gonna, you know, you're gonna have control over your over your work posthumously, you know. Uh, so these are, you know, these are issues that are important. I also, you brought up an interesting fact, which is that sometimes, uh, especially with older students, I've had older students that I tell, look, uh, this is your opportunity now. If you have that novel or you have that, that creative uh, book of nonfiction or memoir, uh, this is your time. And I always bring up. Um, oh my god, uh, Harriet Dorr, who wrote a book back, I think this was back in the 80s, called Stones for Ibarra, which she published when she was 72 or 73. It became an instant bestseller. Then she lived long enough to write one more book, and then she dropped dead. And, and that was it. But, you know, she, she had a best selling book, uh, in her 70s. So it's never too late. Frank uh, you McCord. just have to. Do you remember Frank McCord? He was yeah. like that too. I think. Oh, yeah, that's right. Angela's Ashes. Yeah. It yeah. was yeah. a great book. So, the, yeah, there, there are people like that. And, and, you know, I think as you live, it's part of a simmering process. Some, some people write their stuff early and they have a lot to say early. And then some people mature, like, uh, I, you know, to use a, a, a trite expression, you know, like fine wine. And by the time they hit 60, they're really ready to, to uh, produce some amazing work. So, you know, there's no formula for any of this. Yeah. Uh, and what I love about, you know, what I love about creative writing programs is that you, you do get to talk about these things. And then what I love most of all about the UTEP writing program is that you guys do it bilingually. Right. So those students who are using two or three languages are welcome. And, uh, and I think you guys are the only ones in the country doing that, right. you know. Right. Uh, we tried here in Florida. But nobody is interested, and I don't know why, but <laughs> you guys here are you guys are in the perfect place to promote such a program, and kudos to you guys, you know. You know, uh, I'm thinking of, as you were talking about, uh, those writers that just keep doing it and keep doing it, uh, and then at 72, or I think in Frank McCourt's uh, case, he was in his 80s, wasn't he, when Angela's Ashes came out? It was a big deal, made him instantly uh, yeah. famous. Uh, there's yeah. also the writers that are writing and writing and publishing book after book after book after book, like Juan Felipe yeah. Herrera, publishing books that was a very young man and he just kept coming out with books, coming right. out with books. 
but a lot of the books would disappear after a while, but he didn't care. He just kept publishing, publishing. But then something happened about yeah. 10 years ago where he just busted out and suddenly yep. his work was everywhere. New York wanted to publish him again and he became the U.S. Poet Laureate and that, 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 that happens yeah. as well. Yeah, and uh, you know, and Felipe is a great. He's a, you know, to me, he's a hero because oh, he is. He he really walks the walk and talks and talk. I mean, this is a guy, and he was extremely prolific in the eighties and nineties. I mean, I remember getting his books uh, one every year, or sometimes even Absolutely. two every year. Right? Yeah. Um, the people like him, Jerry Soto, Ray Gonzalez, extremely prolific. Right? And so you go finding your niche, right? Like. Uh, Gary Soto's a fine poet, uh, but then he started writing and publishing uh, young adult novels, and and they were hits, you know. Um, so the same thing with uh, a colleague of yours uh, who's Benjamin retired Sine. now, Ben. Benjamin Alida Science. Absolutely. Yeah, Benjamin Science. This the same thing, you know. So you 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 have to pay attention to audience, and you know writers need to live. So if you write a book for young adults. And it makes money. Well, the, you know that. Hey, good, good for you. You know, you do do more of that. Um, but at the end of the day, it's all about how you define yourself as a writer. And to me, it's just working. And like right. I said, you wake up, you write, and you write, and you write, and you write towards a novel or a memoir or a creative a nonfiction book or a book of poems. And you know the time will come, and you uh, you you publish it, and you publish it with whoever likes it and wants it, and is willing to uh, uh, to get you know to get it out into the light. You right. know it does no good to become bitter uh, because Simon and Schuster refuses to publish your work. You know, right. I've I've had students in my workshop with whom I've argued about. It's like you know you're trying to publish a story in the New Yorker. And like that might happen once in your lifetime, and then what are you going to do with the rest of your work, right? right, right. So, you know, uh, my um, my uh, one of my best friends growing up, uh, becoming a writer, was Andres Montoya, the the poet uh, who died mm -hmm. after his first book, and we just came out with he a, died very yeah, a very young yeah, his, yeah, but. Whenever I used yeah. to get uh, rejections, I would send out a story, and, and I wanted to be in the New Yorker. I wanted to be in all these great journals. I would, uh, you know, I would yeah. say, "Oh man, I got rejected by blank and blank," and Andres would say, "They're stupid." <laughs> That's yeah. it. They're stupid, yeah. and that was always very encouraging. Well, let me let me ask yeah. you a question. You have been, uh, you know, very consistently publishing and writing books for you know ever since your career began. Um, and this last book, The Painted Bunting's Last Malt, when you got your box of books from the publishers, like we all do, we usually get 20 copies or so, and you yeah. opened that book and saw, uh, you opened that box and saw all the books, uh, were you still excited like you were the first time it happened? I, I'm always excited. Uh, and then I, I have to confess, I do look through the book and then more often than not, I will reread a poem and, I, and, and, and I'm immediately compelled uh, to revise it because <laughs> I found something new. But you know what? I don't do it. I, uh, I mean, I've, ha I've, I've, ha I've gotten a couple of chances uh, to do it, which is the beauty of, you know, when you publish the stories or, or essays or poems in literary journals, um, you know, that's a, that's a chance from that to it uh, becoming a book. You, you do have a chance to revise 
but I think once I get the book, it just means that that's it. The, the, the poems have gotten the light of day, and I shouldn't concern myself right. uh, with the poems. What has happened to me, though, and this is kind of the existential uh, you know, bag that I have to uh, deal with, is that over the last 15, 20 years, uh, as I've gotten older and I continue to write, I begin to realize that all of the things that I'm writing uh, are just not up to par with what is happening uh, to all of us uh, in the country politically. So over time, I, I, I force myself to be become much more aware of what I'm saying in my poems. Uh, and my, now, mind you, my poems don't tend to be overtly political, but they, they are becoming much more because... You know, uh, after 2016, I had a hard time coming up uh, with any kind of initiative to write anything down because I really thought for the first time, and my father's words uh, really resounded and echoed in my head, which was that, you know, even a country as allegedly great as the United States can have a downfall and it can turn the wrong corner and head down a dead-end street. And, you know, I, I, we're getting there. So every morning when I write, I'm always thinking, who the hell is going to want to read a poem? I mean, you, you know, read my poem about, I don't know, uh, uh, a pair of friends making a nest, blah, blah, blah. i got to cut the shit out and start <laughs> really writing about, you know, what, what matters. And what matters is, politically speaking, all of these horrors that are happening, and I'm, and I'm hoping... That as I leave the planet, there's a whole bunch of new writers who are coming behind to really, and they, and they are, you know, they're talking about the stuff that matters to them, the, their lives, the difficulties of their lives, uh, the realization of that when you live, when you're a writer from another country in this country, uh, things are, you know, placed in your path to obstruct you, to do damage to you, to prevent you from really living up to your full potential because of your race, your religion, the way that you look, your your last name, all of that stuff. And, you know, that that's kind of the daily struggle for me. It's like, you know, start bringing in um, that kind of material. My new book, which I, you know, coming out of uh, the uh, painted uh, buntings last month, uh, the new book is tentatively titled right now Chernobyl USA uh, because I want people to say Chernobyl USA. I mean, what? where is that? And it's like, yeah, the entire country has become <laughs> Chernobyl. Right. You know, the, the radiation of, you know, racism and bigotry is going to, uh, to get you sick and kill you. Right? right, and uh, I mean, I find it amazing, having been an avid student of, of this country's history, uh, that here we are now in 2020, having lost about a hundred, if not two hundred years of forward-moving, you know, work that uh, so many people did, and now it's just completely ignored. Uh, so that you know, that that's an important vein. Uh, that looms large over all of us who are from other cultures writing uh, in this country now. You know, and uh, and for some writers, I think, it could, you know, if you let it, it'll silence you forever, you know? 
that be dressing. I remember uh, 9-11 when the uh, the Twin Towers were uh, were destroyed. That morning I had yeah. read about it and, you know, and then I went to teach a, uh, a class, a fiction writing workshop that afternoon. Yeah. And as I stood before the class, I thought, I mean, I couldn't help but feel what the hell is the point? What am I doing here? Yeah. And uh, I felt... You know, yeah, it, I don't know. It, it it passed eventually, and I went back to teaching character and all that. But I thought, well, what are we doing that's important that responds to this kind of event? And now in 2020, like you, I feel that so much more powerfully than I ever have. Like, like, what does it matter that I'm going to write another YA novel that has to do with addiction or has to do with this or that when the whole economy, the whole political structure, the whole, quote, American democracy, you know, may not even last. I do, you know, what am I, what are my responsibilities as a writer with a cultural voice? Because let's face it, we have a cultural voice. And, you know, yeah, so I, I totally understand that. And uh, it's, it's... Yeah, it's and, 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 and these are all great questions to keep in mind, in part because, you know, when you're writing fiction, uh you know, you're, you're creating characters who in your mind are living in the real world and you're surrounded by family and a whole culture of people who are struggling and you begin to realize like this struggle is very real and you know, this struggle uh, continues. And so, uh, why not bring that into the work? And, uh, and, you know, and it brings up uh, the whole issue of the uh, Nobel Prizes in Literature, right? Like Americans, the Academy has told American writers uh, that they've been, for the last 20 years, uh, navel-gazing, you know, that they're not really writing about important issues, in part because so many of us just delve deep into the lives of our characters, and I, and I disagree with their assessment. I think there are lots of people writing amazing books about uh, you know, what is going on with them. Right now, I'm teaching a book by Tommy Orange. I was going to mention there, that there. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there, there. I mean, that is an amazing, amazing book. And it shows you exactly what Native American kids and people have uh, been dealt, um, in not only in history, but in recent history. And it's not, you know, and, and those are important books. And these books are coming out all the time, right? right. Uh, so it, it's, uh, yeah. I was just going to say another one that responds to this, what we're going through today is Friday Black, a collection of stories by Nana Kwame Ajay Brené, 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 I think is how you pronounce it. It's an incredible, incredible book. But yeah, uh, There, There is one of them. And it, yeah, that kind of, uh, maybe this is something that, um, you know, uh, I could learn from as a writer who has, yeah. you know, a cultural voice. But, but you know, uh, no, yeah. I, 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 I want to, I, I love this conversation, but I want to get back to the Painted Bunting's Last Molt. Uh, sure. This, this, your, your, your latest book. And I'd like to ask you, before we talk about it, if you would be willing to read one of the poems. Oh, I sure, I sure can. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'm going to read you a poem that I actually, it's one of the few poems I haven't read uh, aloud um, in this collection. Uh, it's, it's a poem about Reynaldo Arenas, who uh, was a Cuban, uh, he was a homosexual Cuban writer, uh, dissident, 
And one of the things that, you know, it's, 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 a, it's just an amazing testament to uh, the human spirit and certainly uh, the writer's spirit is that every time he wrote, uh, I can't remember the novel, I think it was called The Palace of the White Skunk or El Palacio de las Mofetas, de las Blancas Mofetas, something like that. And, um, you know, the government uh, would find uh, the book and then destroy it. And then they would put him in jail, and he would re- and he would rewrite the book from memory, and he did this five times. So when I get students complaining about, oh, the computer, the computer ate my, you know, my first three chapters, it's like, well, I tell them that story. Um, so I, I wrote this poem for for Reinaldo, and it's called the Pentagonies, las Pentagonías de Reinaldo Arena. How many times did you, Reinaldo? were forced to eat your own words, piece of paper torn from your journal, your entrails, feathers in your mouth, rock-hard fists in your stomach. Each time you spat fire back at those bastards, five times they took your novel, found it where you hid it, burnt it as though in fire your memory would fail you, would not redeem you, and each time, again, you wrote the same words, breathed them back from the ashes of their violence and cruelty, and you wrote them down time and again, these bright embers ablaze on the vastness of your spirit, your gorgeous soul, and in the end, your words glowed hypnotic light that exiles pray to, follow to arrive safely home, through the distant fires of their own making, five novels of wind, earth, water, what gives this land of impossibles a gift like you? What brings your memory into the fold of an eternal embrace, your eyes opening, finally liberated? So, you know, it's it's tough, and this is later in the poem, and this is a book that took a good 15 years to finally put together, but through reading about other writers and, and realizing that, you know, nobody is spared uh, on this planet uh, and certainly in our own time and history. And so, you know, the, the, um, uh, the, the awakening that I've been going through uh, as I now turn 59, you know, I'm about to turn 59, I'm, I'm realizing that there's more to my life than just uh, and at one time I called them, you know, kind of pleasant, uh, work, uh, uh, but, um, you know, I've been, I, I've been waking up to the fact that when I write these days, I want to write about sort of the struggles that are emblematic of particular people and particular groups. Uh, I happen to be part of a group that is not, um, you know, that is not, something's happened to them. And of course, I'm talking about Cuban Americans at large. Uh, for years, I have tried to, uh, you know, get, uh, and I've written about this, right, Cuban Americans to see the light in terms of the struggle, not only for Mexicans, but Puerto Ricans and Haitians. And, you know, and it's, and it's a very, uh, tightly wound community and right now they've lost their way and so i've been very outspoken about being cuban-american and be being thought that i'm you know i'm republican or i'm alternative. it's like no far from it I, I just can't believe uh that in this day and age 
a, a whole group of people who struggled to gain their freedom are now turning around and keeping that freedom from the hands of other people. It's, it's very, very shameful and very destructive. Uh, and I really don't know what, what uh, will have to happen. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm very disappointed with, with my own community. So a lot of that work is now just uh, coming into my, ra- you know, getting on my radar and I'm writing about that. Uh, because last time I checked, we're all on the same boat. I mean, this is a white supremacist, supremacist country, and it wants to stay that way, even even when they end up being a minority. Um, and that's very alarming and very disconcerting right. and troubling right now. So, you know, these are things that, again, as a writer, as uh, somebody who's still alive and working, I'm bringing a lot of that into my art Um uh, or trying to anyway but uh, and i think this book uh, deals with a lot of those issues you know my mother went back to cuba and um and she she sent me a picture that would have made my father uh so angry uh she's at a she's in havana at a t-shirt kiosk uh, where they're selling che Guevara t-shirts and i was thinking my god you know here's my mother who's always been apolitical and she's, she's going in for the photo op. She's not thinking, Oh my God, I'm, you know, I'm standing next to these, uh, Che Guevara t-shirts. And so I, I had a very proud moment oh, that's nice. uh, on behalf of my mother. Later when she came back, I told her and she goes, I, I, I don't care. It's oh. all, you know, it's all, pro- you know, BS propaganda anyway from, from, from all sides. So I go, my mother is uh, an interesting uh, being, you know? I'm talking to Virgil Suarez about his latest book, The Painted Bunting's Last Molt. You have a a poem about Ilian Gonzalez. Uh, It's called Poem on the Anniversary of Ilian Gonzalez's Return to Cuba. And I'm sure most of our listeners remember Ilian, the controversy of uh, Cuba wanting him to be returned and then the community in the United States wanting him to stay here because this is the land of the free. But you, 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 you take that political discourse and you really kind of reflect something that a lot of us don't consider, and that's what it must have felt like for that child to lose his mother. And I want to quote the poem. It's, a, it's, it's talking about the sea, as he's dreaming of the sea, Ilian as a little boy. If he counts yeah. the waves, each crest carries with it the trace of memory, a boy his mother's ghostly passing in the night. It's a beautiful line and it's a beautiful poem, but I'm wondering if what Ilian Gonzalez means, not just to this poem, but what it means to to you and to the community from which you come. Well, you know, I've been dealing, this book, part of the difficulty of why it took so long to get this book out was because um, I, when the Elian Gonzalez thing happened, of course, it just took, it just took me over and I started doing research. I started clipping newspaper articles and blah, blah, blah. So I was, in fact, going to write a whole book about Elian. But then the whole ordeal with Elian Gonzalez awoke in me this sense, which I now have and it's very prevalent in my life, which is that, and it, you know, and it's a line that I've gotten from a poem by James Dickey called Adultery, uh, which begins like this. We have all been, we have all been in rooms we cannot die in, 
right? And so I usurped that and, and turned it into we cannot we we cannot live you know we can't live in countries we cannot live in countries we cannot die in and and the whole Elian Gonzalez started bringing me to this idea that it it's beginning to look to me like I am going to have to become an exile one more time and uh, my wife and I have been talking about the possibility of Uh, moving to Mexico, I was very pleasantly surprised recently when my students and I were discussing uh, the house on Mango Street by Sandra Cisneros. That Sandra is now living yeah, in, uh, right. I want to say, Gu Guanajuato, Mexico. She's been there for a long time. And yeah. here I was, lying <laughs> to my students saying, oh, no, she's living in, uh, in San Antonio. Her house is purple, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> All of that is in the past. Right. She's moved to Mexico, and I've started thinking that that might end up being the world too, because you know the Elian Gonzalez uh, who would be living here, I think, would be extremely disappointed uh, <laughs> that so much so much of that freedom that this uh, country uh, promises and propagates and, and, and propagandizes uh, has come to nothing, you know. Right. Um, So I, I'm beginning to suspect that I am going to be thrice the exile if I end up. I'm not moving to Canada because I don't do the cold well. Too cold, too cold. Uh, <laughs> and, well, too cold, and I think Canadians uh, are, you know, I, I spent a little bit of time there, and uh, they don't get my sense of humor. So I'm going to have to go to Mexico where I can laugh with people and hang out with people and and really yeah. enjoy my life. There, there's something about the culture that is not here. There, you know, here you don't even know your neighbors. Um, or or uh, your neighbors are flying a flag that are letting you know not to uh, trust that, you. you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, they, they correct. They don't want to know you. So uh, these are all things that, are, that I've been dealing with in the last uh, 20 years. And I think it's been longer... Uh, since the Elian Gonzalez thing, but you know, I think of a kid often uh, who's now a young man, and um, and I always think, oh my God, let him not return to the United States because if he returns as an adult to the United States, nobody's going to know who he is, and nobody's going to care because he's no longer that cute two-year-old, right? So then he enters the, the malaise of American culture, which is that you had your 15 minutes of fame. Uh, move on, buddy. That would we, be, don't, we don't care. That would be a good story to write. You know, you know when, when, this, yeah. when this happened at the height of the controversy, I happened to be in, um, in Havana for, I think I was there for like three weeks. And uh, yeah. there were protests every night at the, uh, uh, the, 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 what is it, the Maracon? Um, yeah. And yeah, uh, mothers yeah. for Ilion, it was this group called. Everybody was wearing right. these these T-shirts that said "Libra Libranos Ilion," or I, I forget exactly. But right. uh, I remember some guy was riding a bicycle and he had a T-shirt. I wanted a T-shirt, but you couldn't buy them because the government was just giving them to everybody. And, uh, right. and so I, I said, "I'll give you five bucks for that T-shirt." So he he goes, "Okay, but you got to give me your T-shirt." So I take my T-shirt off. He gives me his, and I put it on. I still have that T-shirt. It's a, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, a, it's a keeper. That's you know certainly a nice way to uh, you know if you put it on, bring it to class. That you could tell the story. You know, yeah. Um, yeah it, it's um, I, I don't know. I mean, part of me also 
for the people who are listening and thinking, well, this guy, uh, you know, he's an arrepentido, right? Uh, it's like, no, I'm not, I'm not ashamed to have been born in Cuba and I'm not ashamed to have come to this country. This country has done a lot uh, for myself or my family, uh, but it doesn't make me any less patriotic to be able to uh, judge it and to, you know, Absolutely. to really try to get at its value, right? Um, so there's nothing wrong with that. And also, uh, also, if if we go with your line of thinking about maybe I'll move to Mexico, you know, Sandra Cisneros is there. It makes me think, well, maybe this is going to be something in the next couple of years. A lot of writers who have the ability to do are going to do, and it yeah. and, and it and it having that exile, I guess that self exile. I think if anything can allow you to have some sort of. Uh, uh, distance from your own country and maybe you'll even be able to contribute more yeah. to its positive growth by having that kind of objectivity, I guess yeah. you could say. Yeah. It's not a bad idea. I think I, oh, might, you know, but... I, I was thinking I might go to Spain. I, I love Spain. I, I love Mexico too, but but I'm very comfortable in Spain. I didn't think it would be because I'm a Chicano and you know we grew up with that rhetoric, ah, the damn Spaniards. But I was immediately, yeah. immediately comfortable there. Or Argentina. I'm very comfortable there, too. Yeah. But that's a great Yeah. Idea. Well, you know, my, you know, one, one of my hobbies is um, uh, photography. So anywhere where I can live and really look people, you know, look, take, take pictures of people uh, in their daily lives, right? And, and there's a marked difference when you find yourself in Guadalajara, or in uh, Mexico, wherever you find yourself in Mexico, yeah, people are people are going about their daily lives, and to me, it looks a lot different than the way people live in the United oh, States. Absolutely. You know, it's yeah. Uh, so I'm right. You know, I'm, that's I've been captivated by it. I want I want to live the last. If I if I live another thirty years. I like to live in a place where I can just like go to the park and sit amongst people yeah. and, you know, feed, feed the pigeons or play uh, Chinese checkers or talk to somebody about, you know, whatever, and not feel like, oh my God, I I'm running late for a meeting. I've, I've right. got to go. I've got to go. You know, um, I have a, <laughs> I have a buddy of mine in LA who uh who uh, is a poet and he he wrote this poem about the United States which I think is a fantastic a little poem and it's called the choo choo train of capitalism and it's just a refrain that goes cheaper faster cheaper faster cheaper faster cheaper faster and and it, and it is that's that's all you get here uh for the most part from the time you're born until you die so now that I'm older and more matured, I'm looking for uh, more human connectivity and culture and good food and, and good conversation uh -huh. uh, with people who might be willing to, to return in kindness, you know? So, you know, you know I, I never realized uh, before preparing for this interview with you how much um, our, our, our lives have, uh, have parallels, you know, in terms of how long, how old we are, we're exactly the same age. Um, yeah. you know, how long we've been publishing and to hear you talk about this is just blowing my mind because these are things that I'm constantly thinking about like okay I, I could teach for another five years uh, and after yeah. that I want to go somewhere and I want to do exactly right. what you're talking about I want to sit in the plaza somewhere right. and watch the balloon bender you know and uh, well you've got I mean my wife and I had children 
Uh, our children are now grown up and they've uh, moved out. And so we try to see them as often as we possibly can. And, uh, you know, eventually I'm looking forward to, uh, to uh, becoming a grandparent and I want to be able to travel and see them and spend more time with them. So priorities do change along the way. And, uh, one, you know, it's one of the things that in a way has slowed me down a little bit with the writing because I do look up now more often than not from my writing table and see uh, people coming and going, and I want to come and go with them. You know, I, I wanna, I wanna participate right. in their lives. You know, and, um, and and so that's you know something that'll change whether you want to or not. I, I know you've got a little one, right. and um, you know eventually they go off to college, and then they give you the bad news. It's like you know what, mom, dad, we're not coming back home. It's like oh no. I have to recalibrate my life then, you know? Yeah, well, my baby um, is 18 months old, so by the time she's in, uh, in yeah. college, I'm going to be a very old man. I'm going to be I'm gonna be the yeah, old that, man. That's the true. Yeah, you're going you're you're gonna, to gonna need help to move her in, yeah. 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 Well, I, uh, but that's, I, I'm really uh, enjoying this conversation. We could go on for a long time, but I want to, uh, before, oh, I, before we sign up, I have two more questions that I just have to ask. Yeah. Um, and one is, you know, I'm a fiction writer. Um, you have five novels, five published novels. And, and I just want to ask if, if, if somebody, well, if a listener wanted to read, uh, had time to read just one of your novels, which one would you want them to read? Uh, well, it's a toss up between my, my first novel published, uh, which actually, which, which was my second, my second novel. Oh, hold on, hold on. My second novel was published first, uh, and that's a novel called Latin Jazz, which is uh, has a historical backdrop of the Mariel uh, boat lift back in the night in the eighties. I'm sorry, uh, and it deals with this family that you know where everybody sells ice cream in California, and it's and it's about that moment in history. Um, and then the, my first novel, which is, was the first novel I wrote as an undergraduate in my very first creative writing workshop, uh, which was taught by Elliot Freed at Cal State Long Beach. Uh, and it was a, a semester long novel writing class. And I started that novel and then went on to a second semester. Then when I was at the University of Arizona, I revised that novel and it's, it's called The Cutter. Uh, UK, it was originally published by Random House, but then after Public Press published it. And it's a very short novel. I, I like writing short books in part because of, of a very anxious, uh, I like uh, instant gratification. So <laughs> if the novel takes me, if the novel takes me longer than a year, then obviously I'm doing something wrong, right. you know? That's uh, so those, those two are good, are good introductions. Oh I stopped you know, writing novels. I have, a, I have a confession to make. I have, you know, been collecting books over the years. And, you know, sometimes you buy a book and you don't get to it for a while. It could even right. some be on your shelf for 10, 20 years. I have a copy of The Cutter that I have not read yet. Well, now I am motivated well, to read it. there you go. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And, uh, and again, it's, uh, it's a novel that I learned to write with. Uh, Elliot had given us uh, some very useful uh, parameters in that workshop, and I and I wrote that novel following his parameters, which were uh, write from the third person 
uh, limited point of view. Uh, make sure that your character has no more than a year to resolve a pressing matter or problem. And that's how, you know, I started writing it. The novel is really about my father uh, in Cuba, uh, circa 1970, uh, and, the, you know, the 10,000-ton uh, sugarcane cutting program and all of that. So early on, I realized that history was always going to be in the background a little bit. Uh, but I had, I, I had a lot of fun learning to write. Uh, with that novel and then you know i so, wrote uh, four more you know three more and then a couple of collections of stories and then i switched i mean i had been writing poetry all along but i just decided to right. write poetry so then know? the cutter or latin jazz and then one last question before we sign off um out of all your books every single book that you have published or have in your writer's graveyard uh, somewhere in the cloud or in some files which one best represents you? I want to say my, my favorite book is uh, a book that the University of Illinois Press published a few years back, and it's called Guide to the Blue Tongue, <laughs> uh, which nice. is, uh, I had a lot of fun writing uh, those poems. And it's, uh, it, it's a book that basically takes uh, somebody like Shakespeare uh, down to Havana, and then it's kind of a retelling of the Tempest. And uh, I mean, it was just, I, I had a blast uh, revisiting a, a country that I haven't been back since I left. I mean, I left Cuba for Spain in 1972, and I've never been back. Uh, I've been invited back a couple of times, and each time it's coincided with some sort of strict uh, visa, like, like what's going on now. Right. So uh very hard and, and in part because uh when i enter cuba i have to enter it as a cuban national which means that oh, i have to give yeah. up my american citizenship and you know i'm not it, it doesn't sit well with me oh, right. uh in part out of respect for my parents which right. is i'm an only child and my parents left their country of birth to bring me to the United States. And so I have not been back. I, I, I would like to go back, and I think eventually I will go back. I would love to go back with my daughters. I have a lot of family from my mother's side uh, still left in Cuba. And so one day, one day soon, I'll go back, um, you know. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite the journey, man. This, uh, I'm talking to Virgil Suarez, whose latest book out of many, many books is The Painted Bunting's Last Molt, a book of poems. Uh, Virgil, thank you for joining us on Words on a Wire. Thank you, Daniel. It's been a pleasure. And uh, hello to all the good friends there. <laughs>